Well, good evening, everyone. Glad that uh, we can be together tonight. And as we begin this evening, instead of reading uh, Ezekiel chapter 1, which is kind of a theme for this evening, the theme being the glory of God, instead of reading Ezekiel 1, I'll show you a very brief video that will explain it to you from a ministry called The Bible Project, if you're familiar with it. So here we go. The book of the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a priest who had been living in Jerusalem during the first Babylonian attack on the city. And they spared the city, but they took a first wave of Israelite prisoners and hauled them off into exile, and Ezekiel was among them. So the book begins five years after all that, and Ezekiel is sitting on the bank of an irrigation canal near his Israelite refugee camp, and it's his 30th birthday, no less, the year that he would have been installed as a priest in Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, Ezekiel has this vision. He sees a storm cloud approaching, and then inside the cloud are four strange creatures that have wings outstretched and touching each other. And these creatures each had four faces. And then he saw four wheels, one by each creature. And then he saw that the wings of the creatures were supporting this dazzling platform. And then on that platform is a throne. And then sitting on that throne is this human-like creature glowing and shrouded in fire. And then all of a sudden Ezekiel realizes what he's seeing. He calls it the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's God riding his royal throne chariot. Now the word glory, in Hebrew it's kavod, it means heavy or significant. The biblical authors use this word to describe the physical appearance and manifestation of God's significance when he shows up in person. These images in the vision, they're very similar to what happened when God appeared on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. And it's also very similar to the depictions of God's presence over the Ark of the Covenant. And that's actually the most shocking thing about Ezekiel's vision. What is God's glory doing in Babylon? It's supposed to be above the Ark of the Covenant in the temple in Jerusalem. What a great question, right? That's what we're going to be looking at this evening. And though it seems like esoteric theological uh, consideration, it actually has a great deal of practicality for all of us in the room. We'll be talking about the glory of God this evening because glory, and God's glory in particular, is our calling. So I'm going to begin just by pontificate for a moment regarding conventional wisdom when it comes to glory. According to conventional wisdom, everything has its 15 minutes of fame or its moment in the sun or its day of glory. So what happens in life is people reach a pinnacle of glory and then the glory is fleeting. Happens all the time. If you think about basketball, I remember back to Bill Russell. Bill Russell is famous, and he gives way to Kareem. Kareem gives way to Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan gives way to Kobe. Kobe gives way to Shaq. Shaq gives way to Curry. You got great civilizations, great cities, great products. And before I show this next slide, I'll let you know, I'm a fan. I, grew, I was born in Oakland. But teams come and go as well. Here we go. Human glory doesn't last, right? Durant, gone. Iguodala, gone. Cousins, gone. Cook, gone. Bell, gone. Let's pray. <laughs> so that's, I mean, that's just the way it is. Giants were great. They're not great right now. The Warriors were great. They're not great right now. The 49ers were great. They're not great right now. The Mariners were never great. They never will be great. <laughs> just the way the world works. So... Glory comes and goes for most. For some, it never arrives. But if it arrives, 
Here's the point, it's short-lived. And we can go to the next slide here, we'll kind of look at this. Our calling is to be people of glory, and the beauty of our calling is in a world where glory rises and falls, where glory appears and then fades, in that kind of world, we're offered something entirely differently. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, says it this way. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. And the promise embedded in 2 Corinthians 3.18 is this. The glory that God is offering to us is not dependent on sporting ability or musical ability or financial ability. God is talking to each one of us uniquely about the opportunity for each of us to uniquely display the character of God watch this, with greater and greater and greater clarity as we grow older, so that our, more, our, kind of our most glorious days are our days as elders. What a great word for all of us. Imagine that, not only more in love with God, but more in love with people and clearer in our display of generosity and wisdom and justice and mercy and beauty at the end of life, clearer at the end than at the beginning. That's the vision. That's God's desire for us. And when we see it, Bam, it's beautiful when we see it, right? So sometimes we see it. Uh, I, when I was 12 years old, some of you know this story, I was here in like the back. I came down here to buy beef jerky from my grandmother's house. I heard the speaker coming out of the audio system, British accent. I came and I listened to this guy. John Hunter was the speaker, 1968. I liked what he said so much as a 12-year-old. I bought his book. And then, fast forward 25 years, it's 1993, I'm in England to speak at a Torchbearers General Conference. John Hunter was a speaker for Torchbearers. So I'm really nervous because these are all the leaders of the Torchbearers community, and I'm going to be doing the speaking. And then my friend says to me, hey, Richard, somebody I want you to meet, because he knew this story from Mount Hermon. He comes over, and he introduced me to John Hunter, who at the time was 90 years old. And I said, I said to him, uh, look, 25 years ago, you won't remember this at all, but you changed my life. I bought a book, and that's actually why I'm here tonight. That book became my connection to Torchbearers Missionary Fellowship. And then John Hunter, what's so beautiful about this, this is what, he's 90, right? Like, his Bible is this fat just because he's been writing in it so long. It's just swollen with notes, basically, right? And then he's like this. He's, here, here's this punk kid in his 30s, and this is what he says. He says, hey, Richard, I'm excited to hear what God has to say to you through you tonight. And he's in the front row, and when I begin to speak, he opens his Bible, and he's beginning to take notes at 90 years old. You understand what I'm saying? The glory can go up and up and up, but... Here's the bad news this evening. When we think about the collective state of God's glory amongst God's people, many argue, many argue that the church, and in particular the evangelical church, is entering a time of decay because we're losing our relevance, losing our vibrancy, and the loss of vibrancy and the loss of relevance is the loss of glory. And this is what we need to address this evening, both as individuals and as a church, because really our calling is nothing less than displaying the glory of God. I mean, we all have unique gifts, we all have context and that kind of thing, but every one of us is called to display the glory of God. So what we're gonna do this evening is look at three important questions that will help us swim upstream against kind of the waves of ruins that are overtaking the church. And the three questions are very simple. Why does the glory of God matter? 
Second, what's our biggest danger when it comes to God's glory? And then third, when we look at this uh, glory leaving the temple, we ask the question, why did the glory leave? So let's begin here and kind of take this overview. Why does God's glory matter to us, right? So we've already learned the Hebrew word for glory. But God's glory here is not kind of an esoteric theological concept. Psalm 19 says this, creation declares God's glory. And so uh, many people in my hometown of Seattle don't go to church. In fact, the vast majority of people don't go to church. But I live near the second most used park in the United States. Second only Central Park is Green Lake, right near us. And there's a little running path around Green Lake. And on any given weekend, there can be up to 20,000 people that are making their way around this lake. And they're stopping, they're taking pictures of turtles and bald eagles and ducks and trees. And why is that? I'll tell you why. Because as we were talking this morning about how there's something in the human heart, the human heart longs for God, and when, you know, we long for intimacy, we long for healing, we long for justice, we long for beauty. We long for the exact beauty that God has made. And when we see that beauty, that beauty resonates with us, and that's God's glory speaking to us. According to Romans 1, that's God's glory inviting us into fellowship with the Creator. And so, kind of, creation is a testimony of God's glory. And most people at Mount Hermon know this. That's why we're here, right? When I, when I come here, because I came here as a kid, I get here, and I unpack my stuff, and then every time I'm here, I go down to the creek that is down here, because when I was a kid, I always went down there with my dad, who's been gone now for almost 50 years. But I go down there, and the rock that I sat on when I was eight is still there. And I sit on that rock, and I close my eyes, and when I just inhale the, the fragrance of the redwood forest, I'm like this, all is good. God is good. God is still in control. This is, this is, this is the, what I call the scent of God's glory. Yeah. And you know, as a little kid, I'd skip rocks in that, in that creek uh, with my dad, and Sunday night, after spare ribs, it's exactly where I was. <laughs> Sitting on the rock, inhaling, shedding a few tears, and skipping rocks. Glory of God. In creation. But as beautiful as creation's glory is, God's intent is that humanity would display God's glory with even greater clarity than creation. If you can imagine that, God's desire is that we would see God's glory more clearly in one another than in redwoods. How do I know? Psalm 8 says this. Humans are, and now I'm quoting from the Bible, these are humans, crowned with what? Glory and honor, which means that when God made humans in God's image, it was in God's heart that our species would display the glory of God, which is to say that we would display the character of God, which is to say that God's people would display justice, mercy, generosity, peace, care for the least of these, solidarity of the poor and the outcast, the widow and the orphan, because that's who God is, right? So that's the way it's supposed to work. And in the Old Testament, when God created the world, Genesis chapter 1, it says, on uh, the seventh day, God finished, he looked, he saw everything, it was all good. It says on, on day seven, God rested, and when God rests, God rests in God's temple. I don't know if you know that, that's just always the way it works. God rests in God's temple. God rests on the seventh day, the temple that he rests in, the earth that he's just created. 
And the earth was the, 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 the temple. But then when, when, when sin entered into the equation, God's glory is not now resting on the earth, right? We saw this kind of fourfold dissonance this morning. Cut off from God, cut off from ourselves, cut off from one another, cut off from creation. We're cut off. So, so God's glory isn't resting anymore on the whole. So God picked a people and built a tabernacle and gave them a box called the Ark of the Covenant. And God's glory rested in the tabernacle on the Ark of the Covenant. That's where the glory lived. So the glory lived there. And then a temple was built. And the glory lived there. And then we go to the New Testament. And you kind of wonder, well, where's the glory now? Colossians chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, the mystery hidden from previous generations, now revealed to the Apostle Paul. He says, this is the one thing I preach. What is it? Christ in you, listen, Christ in you is what? The definitive article, the hope of glory. If the world will ever see the glory of God with the greatest possible clarity, they'll see it where? In you. That's amazing. So we don't need to kind of feel sorry about who God has made us to be but rather recognize we have this incredible destiny, containers filled with the glory of God. But what does it mean to be a container filled with the glory of God? This is what it means. It means that if, if, if God has free reign in my heart, my soul, if God has free reign, then Christ, who is the headwaters of generosity and justice and healing and mercy and beauty and crossing social divides and loving enemies and giving generously, and, and, and living in relationships faithfully and serving others joyfully. If Christ is the headwaters of all of that and I'm feasting on those headwaters, then I'm, I'm so filled with Christ that Christ is now spilling out of me, pouring out into the world so that beauty and justice and hope and mercy and hospitality are poured through me. Because hear me, if the world will ever experience the glory of God, it will only be experienced to the extent that it is received through you to them. Does that make sense? That's our calling, to be these containers bursting forth with nothing less than God's character. Here's how Jesus put it, John chapter 7. If anybody's thirsty, and right now I am, what does he say? Let him come to me and drink, and right now I will. And what's Jesus promised? Do you remember? Hey, if you're thirsty, come to me. And I've got, um, I've got 32 ounces here for you. So, you know, I'll give you enough. If you're thirsty, I'll give you a little bit more. But don't waste any. Because, you know, global warming, there's a water shortage. <laughs> the almonds need it. Oh, here, but here's Jesus. Hey, you're thirsty? Come drink from the headwaters, and I will turn your belly into a river. Can you fathom? I was thirsty, like I was lonely. My dad had died. I was depressed. I was anxious. And I met Christ. He didn't just fill me. He turned me into a river. That's our calling. So that's what it means to be people who are filled with the glory of God. But this is very important. If the glory of God is not what people are seeing and receiving from those of us claiming to follow Christ, that's a huge problem. So when people on the outside perceive the church as hate-filled or arrogant or dismissive of the poor or immigrants or complacent about racism or sexism or complacent about any people group who are marginalized, that's a loss of glory. Does that make sense? 
So um, the fastest shrinking demographic within evangelical Christianity is, the, is millennials. Uh, people from 35 all the way down to 18, they're just leaving the church in droves. And I probably have like a weekly conversation with somebody who says something to this effect. Hey, Richard, uh, um, I'm rethinking my relationship with church. I hear it all the time, that particular phrase. I'm rethinking my relationship. Listen, do I, do I love God? Yes. Do I love Jesus? Yes. Do I think Jesus is amazing? Yes. Do I believe that Jesus died for me? Yes. Do I think that church is doing a good job representing the heart and ethic and compassion and mercy of Christ? Not at all. So there's this vast gap in people's minds between the Jesus of the Bible and the Jesus of the church. That's a problem. And, and this is exactly why judgment came to Israel through Ezekiel. <laughs> it's because there was a gap between uh, what was professed and what was expressed. And we gotta, if we don't deal with that gap, then we're just going to wither on the vine and, and continue to live in a, in a sense of boredom and mediocrity and frustration while we continue to carry an outward veneer of Christianity. It's no good. It's just not going to work. So if we're not loving Jesus lavishly in worship and becoming complacent instead in a relationship with God or with one another, there's this loss of glory. When Christianity is reduced to this personal ticket to heaven, rather than good news that God's healing all creation, there's a loss of glory. When you and I as Christ followers adopt the values of prevailing culture so that we are riddled with materialism and individualism and work addiction and body image issues and individualism and nationalism, just like the church, there's a loss of glory, right? And when there's a loss of glory, here's what happens. We continue to do this while the way that we live our lives and our priorities misrepresent Jesus. And if I continue to do this, but I'm misrepresenting Jesus, God has to kind of wake us up. And that's kind of the problem with what I call, theologically, some people call it positional righteousness. Have you ever heard that term before? Like, you're positionally righteous, but you're not actually righteous. But when, you know, I mean, when God looks at you, you know, he sees the righteousness of Christ, but underneath, it's just yuck. And, but that's okay, because you've painted kind of this Jesus veneer on your humanity. And I'm just going to say to you, though I understand the intent behind that theology, painting a Jesus veneer over your dark heart is bad news. Because Jesus never came to impose on you a new additional set of activities. Like one person left the church said to me, look, I'm looking around and everybody's fundamentally the same as people who don't go to church, except the people who go to church miss football on Sundays. That's the only difference. And they were like this, I'm tired of missing football. Like, do you see the problem? If we are so aligned with the values and priorities of the prevailing culture, if that river that I was talking about last night has so swept us into individualism, materialism, consumerism, nationalism, violence, racism, if that's our river and all we're doing is painting on top of that, you know, Hillsong and coffee on Sunday mornings and a little Bible study, no good. That's this, right? So what's going on here is God's desire is that we would, in our daily living, represent the, nothing less than the glory of God. But now we see the biggest problem with the glory. And the biggest problem is explained to us in this next little video clip. Let's look.
And so a dismayed Ezekiel, he begins to perform his task. And after about a year, he has another vision. This one is about the temple. He goes on this virtual tour of the temple, and he sees what's happening there in his absence, and it is not good. In the outer courtyard in front of the temple, he sees this large idol statue. And then he sees the elders of Israel worshiping other gods, both outside and inside the temple. And then he sees the women of Israel. They're worshiping a Babylonian god named Tammuz, and the vision ends with God's glorious throne chariot moving up and away from the temple. It's leaving, going east, headed towards Babylon. So in chapters 8 through 11, Ezekiel has a vision, and it's a stunning vision. I'm just going to give you a few kind of highlights here. Here's chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 is where this vision kind of picks up. And so Ezekiel goes into the temple. Let's just pretend for a minute this this is a temple, okay? Pretend this is a temple. And back here somewhere is the, kind of the Holy of Holies, you know, that extra room in the back. And then in the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the Covenant, right there, okay? So here's what, here, watch this. Uh, first as he goes in and God says to him, he goes, hey, look around at what do you see. That's what he sees. In the temple, are there priests? Yes. Is there a Bible? Yes. You know, is the is the... Kind of outward religious protocol going on? Yes, it's all there. You know, priests, worship, Bible. Oh, and uh, we're worshiping idols as well. We're also worshiping idols. So there's stuff carved in the walls now, kind of new different gods are carved in the walls. And so people are worshiping those idols. And people are worshiping idols outside a little bit. And then what you see is there's idol worship and quote-unquote real worship going on. There's this mixture, right? Some for God, some for me. Some for God, some for me. The mixture is going on. And in the midst of the mixture, here's what happens. The glory gets up and leaves. So if you read 8 through 12 of Ezekiel, it, it gets up first. It leaves the ark. And this picture is kind of a ball of light, okay? So it gets up, it leaves the ark, and it leaves the holy place, and it comes and it fills the room. Then it goes to the back where people are sitting outside, called the outer courtyard. Then it goes to the kind of the bridge that is going across the road, and then the glory just kind of dissipates and disappears, right? So what's, here's what's stunning. There's two stunning things. First of all, uh, stunner number one, the glory of God leaves the building. Like God leaves the building. Second stunner, even bigger and more alarming, nobody notices. And, and like, how can nobody notice? That's a really important question. Because if we don't wrestle with that question, we're at risk of the glory of God being conspicuously absent from our own communities and we don't even know it. So, so let's look at this. Why did the glory of God leave? Well, to understand, we've got to go back a bit and, and realize and I'm going to use this as a prop tonight. The glory of God. This is the Ark of the Covenant. Way back in the day when uh, Israel worshipped in a mobile tabernacle, like this mobile worship center, they'd set it up, tear it down. The glory of God was this, it was this box and, and called the Ark of the Covenant. The glory of God was always there. And the glory of God would kind of guide Israel through the wilderness, you know, fire by day or cloud by day, fire by night, all that stuff. So the glory of God is located in the ark. And in all the cultures of the day, temples were resting places for the gods. And Israel was no exception. So God's glory rested on the ark of the covenant in the tabernacle when Israel was backpacking through the wilderness. 
And then later, when Israel settled down in the temple, still, that's where God's glory is, right? But here, now, this is the thing. This is the very important crux here. Over time, people began to assume that because the ark was, quote, unquote, God's mailing address, like, where does God live? Where's God's glory? Oh, God's glory is at the ark, right? So people began to assume that because the ark was God's mailing address, God would always be wherever the ark is, right? All the power and, and majesty and for usness of God would, like, would always be there because that's where God lives. So this is the problem. People then began to believe that what they really needed when push comes to shove, you know the saying, what we really need, we just got to make sure we have what with us at all times. If I got the ark, baby, I'm on top, right? So this problem comes to a head because Israel kind of slips into some idolatry. This is even before they have a tabernacle. And then in 1 Samuel 4, God's trying to wake them up. The Philistines attack. They defeat Israel in battle. And Israel comes back together. And they're weeping and they're mourning. And they go, why did we lose? And then in 1 Samuel 4, this is what they said. Oh, I know why we lost. We lost because we didn't take the ark into battle with us. And then they're like this. This is crux. They say, come, let's take the ark into battle. Go back again. We're going to fight the Philistines. Let's take the ark into battle that it may deliver us. It, not God, it. Not God, the box. Not God, the preaching. Not God, Mount Hermon. Not God, the music. Hey, listen, music doesn't change you. Preaching doesn't change you. Redwoods don't change you. Mount Hermon doesn't change you. Christ changes you. And if we, if we think that the form is the most important thing, we've taken our eye off the ball. That's exactly what happened to Israel. So they go get the ark, right? And then when they go get the ark, if you read it, everyone's like this, yeah, now we're going to win. And then they go into battle again. And not only are they defeated, but the Philistines rip off the ark. And they take it to their camp, basically, right? So the problem was they equated the form in which God's glory resides with God's actual glory. And the result was that when they went back into uh, uh, battle and were defeated again, and the ark was uh, captured, they came back, and they were undone because they didn't know where to turn. So this is, here's the deal. As long as we have the ark, we're safe, became later then with the temple. As long as we're in the temple, we will always win. Because who lives in the temple? God lives in the temple. So Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4, Jeremiah, a contemporary of Ezekiel, he says to people just like us, he says, hey, don't trust in deceptive words. When you say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, as a means of saying we're safe because we're in the temple, you're deceiving yourselves because the temple doesn't deliver you, God delivers you, and God's left the building. And so this is exactly kind of where we find ourselves now is in a position where we're in danger of elevating forms and turning the forms of worship into idols and, 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 and making the form of worship the criteria for being spiritually healthy. It, that will never work. 
So what happened is Israel, confusing form with reality, thought that they needed the right location rather than the right heart, a right box rather than the right heart. If we have the right box or the right uh, uh, form, the glory of God will be there. And we think this way too. Hey, if we do the right things, whatever those things happen to be for our tribe, the glory of God will be there. If we have the right music, the glory of God will be there. If we come and sniff the redwoods, the glory of God will be there. If we have a good devotional life, the glory of God will be there. If, if we tithe, the glory of God will be there. No, no, uh-uh. Listen, the result of this kind of thinking has the church arguing excessively about what is the right form for church, right? Like, well, hey, what do we have to do to have the right form so that we have the glory of God? And then people are saying, oh, it's too much Hillsong, not enough hymns. Or on the same Sunday, too many hymns, not enough Hillsong. And why are there drums? And I played one time at a thing, uh, Amazing Grace, you know, and somebody else was speaking, I was on the keys, and uh, we did the fourth verse blues, and so I diminished the third and diminished the seventh, and the speaker gets up and he says, to, he rebukes the band, he says, I do believe the glory of God left the building when you began to play the jazz, right? <laughs> and so now there's this, this kind of a debate about, oh, you know, which, what music contains the glory of God? What coffee contains the glory of God? It, like, if it's not shade-grown at 5,000 feet and raised by left-handers, then it's no good, you know? And so, um, hear this. The glory didn't depart because the singing was bad. The glory didn't depart because the singing was too loud or too hillsong or too traditional. The glory didn't depart because the coffee was Folgers. Look, the glory didn't depart because you used the word inspired rather than errant. No. The glory didn't leave because the form was wrong. The glory isn't present or absent because of what we do. The glory is present or absent because of the state of our hearts. So that when Israel comes back, now they've lost the ark. It's been ripped off by the Philistines. And they come back and they say, what do we do now? And then this, remember what Samuel says? He says, hey, go get the ark. No, that's not what he says. This is what he says. You have to return to the Lord. Hear me. Listen, we'll pick this up tomorrow. Return to the Lord, not with a portion of your heart, not with 80%, not with 90%. Return to the Lord, what? With all your heart. Because when all your heart is devoted to God, God's glory fills you. And when we have idols crowding our heart, God's glory leaves. That's the way it works. So the result here is we turn to Jesus and we receive Jesus' healing, we receive Jesus' forgiveness, we receive, we receive Jesus' life. And when we do that, that's what, that's what makes worship real. It's not that we have everything lined up perfectly. We're just turning to Jesus. And when we turn to Jesus, I'm telling you this, good things happen. When we turn to Jesus, we just have to turn. We have to turn again and again and again. We had this thing years ago. We, you know, our church built a building and... Uh, Suddenly, we grew really rapidly, like we doubled in size in a year or something like that. And then I get a magazine in the mail. Congratulations, you're one of the fastest-growing churches in America. I didn't even know anybody was keeping score, right? Fast-growing. Oh, wow. And then, as soon as you're on a list like that, other pastors begin to call you. And they're like this. How do you do it? What do you do? 
How, like, how do you, how'd you grow your church? How'd you, how'd you grow your church? I, this, is, this is me. I don't know. I wouldn't do anything. Like, preach Christ and good things happen, right? Turn people to Jesus. You live your life in a way where you're continuing to turn to Jesus. That's, that's the only answer. I don't have anything else for you, you know? But for many people, it's not enough. I need, you know, tactics and a better mission statement and better music and better audio and better coffee. I'm here to tell you, no, you don't. I've been around the world, and I have been in some of the worst forms of worship ever where the glory of God has been palpably present, so powerful, so profound, right? I was in Rwanda at a worship service in the midst of immense poverty. This church didn't have a sound system. They had like one speaker of some sort, and if it could go to 10, they had it cranked up to 14, right? So that's pure distortion. You can't even, like you can't understand anything and it's all, it's terrible. And the glory of God is right there in the building. So thick that I'm weeping with joy, right? So bad music, good glory. And you know, I've been in, been in Austria uh, in a church stiff with a lack of emotion. Here's all these Austrians with lederhosen on and dirndls and stuff, and it's all high church, and nobody's smiling. And then uh, you go into their little coffee hour afterwards, and you realize, oh, these people have a tremendous, profound ministry to Syrian refugees who are flooding into Austria. And they're all here sitting around and having coffee with the lederhosen people. Like, the glory of God is there, even though the worship wasn't my thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? I was in India once, and there was a worship service, where a guy had been given a guitar and because he'd been given it, he thought he needed to use it, didn't know how to play it at all. And it was the music. It was the music, right? And so we go, we go into this little village and, and this guy is playing in a way entirely unrelated to the singing that is going on. I find it super annoying, right? And I'm like, where is the professionalism and, you know, where is the... You know, where's the polish and come on, this is not going to work. Well, they, we're in a village of 200 and at the end, uh, after like a three hour thing of sermons and bad music and then another sermon and a drama, at the end there's, a, there's an altar call in a village of 200, um, 190 people come forward to receive Christ and uh, be prayed for. And then, so then we go back to Bible school where I'm teaching and it's cold, it's January, we're up in the Himalayan foothills. Uh, there's no heating in the building. Somebody pulls a barbecue in with briquettes inside and they light the barbecue <laughs> to heat up the room and they hand us all, you know, handkerchiefs that we dip in water and we're kind of protecting ourselves from asphyxiation <laughs> and we're having a prayer meeting and the reason we have a prayer meeting is because the director of the school said, hey, 190 people just came to Christ and the mayor came to me and he said, if you don't bring people back and start a church here, that would be cruel and unjust. Who's I want two students by the end of next week. And so they all prayed and then at the end of the prayer meeting, here's two students, we'll go. We'll go start a church. Yeah, Wow, was the glory present? Yes. Was the guitar playing good? No. Does God care? Not at all. Man, we sweat the wrong stuff, folks. Do you understand what I'm saying? We sweat the wrong stuff. So we had to learn here that God's glory is not contingent 
on being high church, low church, in church, out church, emergent church, conservative church, liberal church, Presbyterian church, Baptist church, Pentecostal church, lose your salvation church, keep your salvation church. God's like this. I I want my glory in your church. Whatever you're wearing, I don't care, but I want the inside to be nothing less than the generosity, justice, mercy, hope, and peace of Christ. That's your calling. So the glory left because in spite of the fact the outward form was all proper, (laughs) the heart had departed. That brings me to the kind of last thing here. Uh, Why'd this happen? Why'd the glory leave? Well, a couple of things. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 17, iniquity. That's the first big category. The glory God left because there was unchecked iniquity. Well, now, what does iniquity mean? Well, it's interesting. Um, We think of iniquity. We often run to moral sexual stuff, and there's certainly a point to be made there. But uh, God's big complaint here, chapter 9, verse 9. Listen to this. You want to know why the glory of God's gone? The land is full of violence. The land's full of blood. The city's full of injustice. Chapter 11, verse 12. Chapter 9, verse 9. In other words, here's your problem, Israel. You've, you, you've unwittingly and passively allowed yourselves to be shaped by the surrounding values of culture rather than continuing to turn back to me again and again and again. And so you've been, though, though you have Jesus paint on, like you're singing, and there, there's Bible, and you're sniffing the redwoods, all good. But underneath, your fundamental values are aligned with the idols of the culture. That's the complaint there, then. So the clear life-giving water of simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ have become polluted. Um, materialism displaced generosity. Violence displaced peace. Oppression displaced justice. Neglect for those on the margins displaced compassion. Does this this sound familiar? We're still gathered in the temple, still confident that because the ark is in the temple, God's there. But hear this, the glory of God doesn't remain as the operative force when violence and greed and oppression and racism and bloodshed are the word of the day. It just doesn't happen. And so we need to kind of reframe here our values if we want to see the glory of God uh, present and real in our lives. We've got to reframe our values. Some of you know that years ago, I was in Thailand, actually en route to India, where the bad guitar playing unfolded. But I was, I was um, stuck in Thailand because of a flight delay and uh, ended up in a motel where the guy, the bellhop showed me not only the room, but at the end of the time, he said, um, uh, when do you want the girl? And I said, what? Oh, you know, the girl that comes with the room for $20 a night. When do you want the girl? I said, oh, what a girl. I pull out my wallet. Look at this, wife, kids. Yeah, cool. When do you want the girl? And I got mad. I said, I don't want to see a girl in here. And then, I, and then he left, and I got sick to my stomach. And I, and I walked out, and I'll never forget the image, walking down the hall. There's a girl dressed for work, 14. 
I did a little research, asked some people. She'd probably sleep with 20 men a night. And she's not paid. She's sold into that by her family because they can't afford to feed their children. Now listen, let me tell you why I share that story with you. I was in the, at that moment, I was in the middle of a heated debate with a Christian friend of mine about whether the earth was created in seven days or was a longer period of time. And, and as, when I'm walking down that hall, I'm like this. I don't care anymore about the age of the earth. Do you know why? Micah 6.8, that's why. What does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love mercy, walk with God. Do justice. In a world of human trafficking, in a world of mindless school shootings, in a world where in my city, homelessness has increased from 4,000 people on the streets a night to over 15,000 on the streets every night, in a world of opioid addiction, in a world of meth addiction, in a world of epidemic suicide and mental illness. If we're arguing about the age of the earth, the glory's already departed. We have work to do. That's why, that's why we have a shelter. That's why we have a community meal. That's why we have a food bank. That, that's why we partner with Rwanda. That's why we do what we do because we, our desire is to show people the real character of God, generous, loving, for everyone, no matter what they believe, or if they ever believe, we are the presence of hope. That's our calling. And that, they lost that because of iniquity. Second, um, there was such decay, chapter 5, verses 5 through 8, that this is what happened. God said to Israel, look, I called you to be light, so I wanted you to be like an example to others. And instead, you've actually become darker than the surrounding culture. So, so in other words, uh, God's desire for the nation of Israel, Genesis chapter 12, to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so you can be a blessing, right? So that others will be drawn to the light of justice and mercy and hospitality in the way that orphans and widows are cared for. People will see in you hope and creativity and celebration. You'll have more vacation than anybody. You'll have great health care. You'll have a good public work system. Every, there'll be no one in need. It'll be remarkable. There will be justice. There will be mercy. There will be care for those on the margins. And instead, there was, at the time of Ezekiel, oppression, bribery, neglect, hard-heartedness, abusive priests, and pride. So, so God's vision was this, and instead, they didn't just sink to the culture, they sank below the culture so that the culture said, well, we don't know who the true God is, but the one thing we know that we don't want to be is an evangelical. Does that sound familiar? I've called me light, but instead, darker the surrounding culture. My wife and I, uh, last spring, we went to uh, a little holiday in Italy uh, because I was over teaching in Austria, and we spent an extra week, and uh, our neighbors generously uh, loaned us their uh, apartment in Italy that we stayed in for, for a week. It was really, really wonderful, but as we were, we took them out to dinner and to thank them and took them to a play about uh, a Christian woman involved in uh, 
resistance against the Nazis in World War II. They're not Christians at all, but they're wonderful people. So uh, anyway, we're sitting over dinner, and uh, this gal asked me, hey, Richard, what are you preaching on these days? Now, we, have, like, we never talk about spiritual stuff, right? What are you preaching on these days? I said, well, right now I'm actually planning a series for the fall called Reframing. She said, oh, interesting title. What's that? I said, I feel like Christianity needs to be reframed in the city of Seattle because people have a wrong image of who Jesus is. And then this is what I said to her. I said, I bet you didn't know this, but Jesus is actually about justice and mercy and crossing social divides and generously sharing resources with people on the margins, whether or not they ever believe like us or not. Uh, Jesus is about loving enemies. Jesus is about going the second mile. Jesus is about turning the, the other cheek. Jesus is about caring for the earth. Jesus is about creating beautiful art and beautiful meals and beautiful relationships. And this is literally what she said. She said, are you kidding me? She said, that's not Christianity. I said, oh, no, it actually is. She said, it's not the thing. It's not what I know. Not in this city. She says, you want to know, know what I know? This is what I know about Christianity. And then, she, then there's kind of a litany. Pedophilia with priesthood. Financial abuse among evangelical pastors. Arrogant evangelical pastors. Uh, pontificating and, and building walls rather than tearing walls down. And, and you, I could just see it in her. She was like, this is all I know of Jesus. Listen, I'm, t- I'm charging you in Jesus' name. Go change that, would you? So that people begin to see Jesus as a God of justice and mercy and love and hope and peace and power and beauty and hospitality and unconditional, infinite love for all people, regardless of what they ever believe. That's the gospel. Because that's what Jesus does for us, right? So what makes me so mad is she is not rejecting Jesus. She's rejecting the caricature that we have created. So I'm going to close with hope here. And by the way, it gets better tomorrow night, so. (laughs) But the hope is this. We started with this, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 16 to 18. Man, the glory of God. Oh, the glory of God's gone from the church. Well, I guess there's nothing we can do. Oh, listen, it's this simple. 2 Corinthians 3. But we all, with unveiled faces, we strip away the veneer of our coffee, our preaching, our arguments about doctrine. We strip all that away, and we simply, what? Turn to Jesus. And when I, with unveiled face, look at Jesus, this is the promise. I'm transformed from glory to glory to glory to glory. Remember that? Remember last night? Order, disorder, reorder. I'll give you one example of this. My friend Monique in... um, Rwanda, a victim of the genocide, her whole family killed. She multiple times uh, sexually abused and molested during the, over the course of the genocide. Now the nation's rebuilding. Our church is involved with rural relief in a profound ministry of empowerment for local churches there. Monique, who lost her husband um, in, the, in the genocide, she has the water purification system for her village in her home. It's a, it's a big jug, and if you pour dirty water in on the top, you can get clean water at the bottom. So anyone can go down to the river, get some water, pour it in. So here's, here's Monique. She said, my world was undone. I, I, I wanted to join this movement to kill uh, Hutus who had killed my family. 
I was bitter. I was broken. I was afraid. There was a joy in my life. I was mad at God. And then she, this, she said, it wasn't working. That wasn't working. So I turned to Jesus. And then when I turned to Jesus, she said, I realized I got the thing here, the well. So all the kids are coming every day to my house, all the kids. So having turned to Jesus, she said this. So I decided I'm going to start a kids club, like a Bible study, when the kids come for the water. And now, twice a week, there's 30 kids out on her, the little patio in front of her house. Her house could never hold all 30 of the kids. But there's 30 kids studying the Bible, learning about Jesus. I, I mean, just, I'll just tell you this is in, in the end. So she said, and she said, in the goodness of God, she says, in the goodness of God, you are here today when the children are here. And they had prepared a dance for us. So she pushes the button on a bad sound system. <laughs> and these kids begin to dance. And there's not a dry eye among our team. Because these kids have seen, they've been to hell and back, man. And instead of bitterness, and instead of fish shaking, there is joy and love and glory. Acts 4.13 that's what it says. And when they looked at the apostles and heard their words, they knew what? That they had been with Jesus. We got to turn away from form to the naked Christ. That's where glory resides. Father, thank you. Thank you that no matter how bleak things may look or how bleak this may feel, we can turn right now and a healing begins. And I pray that in your mercy you'd shepherd us in that turning, Father. Both tomorrow and Thursday and Friday to build a foundation for a new work, all things new, for the rest of our days. In the name of Christ, who is our hope, we pray. Amen. Thank you.